right, good morning. Oh, cool. You're all awake. Cool. Um, so Palm Sunday, it's, been, it's really interesting. I, I think when I first, the first time I preached uh, a Palm Sunday sermon or what have you, I, I very much kind of treated it a, a bit like an appetizer for Easter, you know, kind of like a, a, a nice prelude, a, an on-ramp or something. But over the years, the more I dig into any of the four Gospels' accounts of the triumphal entry, the more I'm, I feel like I really appreciate um, the beauty of it, right? It's kind of like uh, the, the opening band of a head, at a headlining concert. It's, it's not the headliner, it's the opening band, and so it's really underappreciated, right? You might skip it. You might wait for the headliner, but it's, they're really good, guys, like even if they don't have all the lights and everything, right? But unlike the opening band, it is also its own thing. It actually is kind of a headliner of itself. It's no Easter appetizer. And so over the years, I feel like I've really learned to appreciate, uh, both as a pastor but, and as a Christian, how this is, this is a remarkable and amazing, uh, simultaneously a, a turning point in the Gospels. It is the fulfillment of Old Testament hopes in ways that are nuanced and thick and robust with meaning as a tapestry of Scripture. It is, a, it is the peak of Jesus' earthly ministry up until uh, and leading up until the, the, the Holy Week. And it is also, it's also a mirror that, is, that reflects the, this universal tendency we have to reduce Jesus to a mascot that we adopt for our own purposes. And so we need Palm Sunday not just as a, as a means and an opportunity of celebrating Jesus and Holy Week and, and all that he has done on our behalf, but also in order to continually expose so that we don't get familiar with our caricatures and to redefine our expectations. And so we're going to look at kind of two big things and two big aspects of that, that caricature and how Jesus surprises us in this passage and then we'll unpack the implications. And so the first is, is what we see here is a, is a different kind of kingdom, right? A different kind of kingdom. And so you have to keep in mind that this is Jerusalem. This isn't just another city or town in Israel or Judah. It's not in Samaria. This is Jerusalem. This is the place of, of, of the temple, where God's very presence, where God dwells among his people, his presence on earth. This is the capital of God's people. It is the city on a hill. And it's under oppression and control of a foreign pagan empire in Rome. The expectations of Jesus walking into this situation of, well, actually, I guess technically riding a donkey into this situation, this context, were so thick. And if you remember the first sermon we did, uh, I preached in this series, you'll remember that Jesus starts his ministry by going to a synagogue and taking the Isaiah scroll or, uh, you know, the, the scripture of Isaiah and reading from it the following. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And with the most epic of mic drops, Jesus says, today upon hearing this, that scripture is fulfilled. Okay, 
you combine that with what it says in verse 37, where it says, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise with God in a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. They were expecting liberation. The, the, the mood and the, the atmosphere was, this is it, finally. There is a sky-high anticipation. There is an ultimate expectation. And Luke even plays into it in the way that he narrates the story, right? You, does it, it probably felt weird as you're listening to this and reading it on the screen that so much of this passage is focused on a, a donkey that's tied up in some, outside somebody's house, right? It's actually, in fact, five times Luke says, uses the word untie. And that word untie is, is the same word in the Greek when it says in Luke chapter 4 to proclaim loosening or liberty, to set free those who are oppressed or those who are bound. Luke is intentionally trying to draw the reader and the listener back to the beginning as if to say, you guys, this is it. This is culmination. This is where you can let out a William Wallace-like freedom. Jesus is here. It's really unfortunate how disappointed they're going to be. <laughs> right? Let's ask, how, how different is this kingdom from their expectations? And I want you to try to imagine their own unfolding disappointment. Because even as they expected comfort and praise and celebration, Jesus brings the opposite. Right? right after this passage in verses 41 through 44, it says that Jesus laments and weeps over Jerusalem for how unfaithful it, God's people have been and for what is, what is about to happen. He rebukes both the religious rulers and the people who enabled them in the temple for setting up shop stalls to sell religious goods and services inside the temple grounds, and he drives them out of the temple. Right after that, in chapter 20, verse 9 through 18, he tells the parable of the wicked tenants and describes and says, you should anticipate judgment as a result of your poor stewardship of all the blessings that God has given you, his people. And worst of all, especially for that kind of context and what was going on with the Roman Empire, in verses 19 through 26 of chapter 20, he says, you should actually also pay your taxes. Now, I know that sounds like, okay, well, that's not, I mean, I don't really have too much of a choice now. Um, but that was a big deal because it was basically, it was the taxes that were paying for the oppression that they were experiencing. And it was the taxes that paid the Roman soldiers' salaries that kept them from worshiping as they longed to and were called to by God. It, they were participating against their conscience in systemic impression of each other, one another, and themselves. Okay? If that were all, it'd be, it'd be a lot. But Jesus just keeps going. In chapter 21, verses 5 through 9, he foretells the destruction, not the liberation, of the temple. And then Jerusalem, right after that in verses 20 through 24, and then he foretells more war and famine to, that is going to follow in general in chapter 21. I'm harping on this and I'm listing all this because you need to see that how different Holy Week is from the parade that inaugurated it and from the expectations of those who were at the parade. And it all just makes no sense whatsoever unless 
Jesus is as different a kind of king as, he is, as his kingdom is from what we expect. So let's talk about that, how, how he is a different kind of king. Um, I think it was only last year that I, I noticed and realized that when we refer to this, and because the heading in your Bible that says the triumphal entry on this passage, like that's, the heading isn't like Scripture itself. It's how we organize Scripture and, and use that as a shorthand to describe what follows. But still, a triumphal entry is not actually original to this passage. There is a, a, a precedent set by the Roman Empire, actually. The Roman triumph, this is what they're called, triumphs, were these spectacular celebrations and a lavish parade that happened to honor a, victor's, a victorious general after like, some kind of an important battle. So they would send messengers. Like, let's say somewhere in Gaul or you know, modern-day Germany, a, a Roman legion had this amazing victory. The, the, the commander of that army would send a messenger saying, I'm here to proclaim and amaze some good news, a victory that Rome has accomplished, not just this particular general, but Rome as a city and as a people has achieved. And therefore, we ask the senator, we ask the emperor to throw a triumph in that army's honor. It wasn't just a celebration, it was also kind of propaganda, actually. Because it would remind everyone of Rome's, Rome's glory. Maybe, specifically, it would endear citizens with a greater loyalty and morale and encouragement. But for its subjects, it would introduce fear and intimidation and reminder that Rome has military might to back up its authority. Now, this propaganda was actually so effective that over time it came to be that, that only the emperor was allowed to have a triumph because the generals who were, particip- who were uh, celebrated would become so popular with people that they became a political threat <laughs> to the emperor or the Caesar, right? But I want to I read actually a, a, pol- a short description here from a political historian on like, try to picture this as the parade is going through the city of Rome. It says, the godlike victor would ride a spectacular, tall-sided chariot pulled by four horses. He wore a laurel crown and carried a laurel branch in his right hand. In his left hand, he carried an ivory scepter with an eagle at the top, symbolic of the triumph. He was accompanied by a slave. This is my favorite part. He was accompanied by a slave whose job was to hold above his head a gold crown, not letting it sit on his head, and continuously whisper in his ear that amongst all this adoration... He should remember that he was only a mortal and not actually a god. A 5th century Roman historian named Orosius, which, you know, throw that on the list of hipster baby names, um, said that by the 1st century of the Christian era, so in other words, by the time Jesus was born and was alive and did, and, and, and did his ministry, there were 320 triumphs that had gone through Rome in the four-ish centuries leading up to that. 320. So this was as familiar to anyone in the Roman Empire as the Super Bowl is to us. And especially the, you know, the, the ticker tape parade that happens afterwards. It's disturbingly similar, actually. Um, so how different is King Jesus from this context? How different? Well... In Zechariah 9, verse 9, this is actually, we see that this is 
that, that Luke is actually saying that this is a fulfillment of something that God foretold hundreds of years prior, actually before the first Roman triumph. Where Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And actually, before that, we have an even more graphic picture of this moment in Genesis 49. Verse 11 says, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he was washed with his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. This is anticipating Holy Week in general, not just Palm Sunday. I want you to try and imagine the unfolding dissonance that his disciples in Jerusalem would have been experiencing, right? A general arrives at his triumph in a four-horse chariot with a conquering army behind him crying, Imperator, which is like Latin for victor, right? All of that introducing, inaugurating before a week of praise. Jesus arrives on a donkey with a crowd crying, Hosanna, a week before they'd cry, crucify him. The Roman triumph culminated with the sacrifice of a lamb in thanks for Jupiter's blessing in his temple and an extravagant feast to celebrate the death of Rome's enemies. Jesus' triumph culminates with the sacrifice of a spotless lamb in atonement for God's enemies, not their defeat, in atonement for God's enemies. That's us. And a weekly feast of bread and wine that celebrates the death of death even as we participate in what we celebrate communion, where a general's face is actually painted red in human mimicry of the god Jupiter, Jesus' face is painted bloody in divine mockery of man's false gods. A general is crowned with laurel and Jesus is crowned with thorns. An emperor empties his coffers in order to buy a city's loyalty, but Jesus filled a coffin in order to ransom the world. A slave had to whisper reminders to a robe-clad victor that he isn't God, but Jesus proves he is with the love-born whisper, it is finished. The contrast could not be more stark, and yet this is Jesus' triumphal entry. He turns everything in terms of how we understand victory, how we understand triumph, how we understand power, how we understand glory, how we understand celebration, how we understand love and fealty and loyalty, all of it. He turns it on its head from the way we would define it. And so let me, before we get into the Q&A, which we'll, we'll do right after this part, there are two non-negotiable implications here especially for Christians. One, this king deserves our worship. This king deserves our worship. Far more than any Roman general or triumph, right? Too often, we think of worship as a mere means to our end, right? Whether that is for encouragement and comfort or for enjoyment and nourishment, we reduce the purpose of worship to what it produces in us, Does that make sense? Let me say that again. We reduce the purpose of worship to what it produces in us, and that is literally putting the cart before the horse, or maybe the 
chariot before the donkey. Anyway, I won't push that metaphor too far. Over time, if that is our posture, then our purpose of worship becomes our good instead of our neighbor's and for our glory instead of God's. You see, the, the Roman triumph was not just this thing that only happened you know, two, millennial ago, two millennia ago. It is, it is actually an especially lavish example of this human universal tendency towards self-worship and tw- towards self-serving worship. But what's crazy about this is that you would think in Jerusalem, of all places, right, that, that they would know better. And it's actually kind of comforting and encouraging to see in verses 39 through 40 the way that the Pharisees respond. They say, it says, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, yes, the Pharisees were very concerned with heresy, and they were thinking that Jesus was being, let's just say, uh, in an inordinate amount of attention and praise um, that maybe should have been reserved for God alone, and it is, and he was. But actually, what we see in the narrative after this, we see that the Pharisees were actually far more concerned about the political consequences of Israel declaring a king coming to his kingdom in Jerusalem with the Roman Empire in control. It was actually their puppet power that was being threatened in this moment. And so Jesus says, okay, fine. You're missing the point of the worship. You're actually putting the effects of worship, which is peace, before who deserves worship. And it do you see how it has totally compromised your, your lens and how you see God's people, how you see God, right? To the degree that even, you know, when it says the stones would cry out, yes, he does kind of mean that in this strange kind of miraculous literal sense, but stones in the Old Testament were also images or metaphors for Gentiles. And so there's a sense that Jesus is starting to... to uh, foretell and, and, and foreshadow that, okay, if you don't get it, there are people who will. And it's not, it's not because they're better, it's because they haven't turned, me, turned their Messiah into a mascot. And that's the danger. So in other words, for us, here's, this is what we need to hear, don't worship God to get something out of it. Don't worship God to get something out of it. Worship God because you already got Jesus. Worship God as a response to all things that God has given you, including and ultimately and especially himself. That's why we do this. We worship in response not not to manipulate God to give us something like he's a cosmic vending machine. There is no triumph that could more demonstrate his worthiness of worship than him doing that and riding in on a donkey. Second, kind of non-negotiable implication here is that this kingdom demands our fealty. This kingdom demands our fealty. See, the narrative across all four Gospels, especially of Holy Week, weaves together seamlessly both kind of Old Testament prophecy and fulfillment, as well as this Roman imagery and cultural context, so that whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, you would have read this in the same way as screaming 
the establishment of a different kind of kingdom that demands a different kind of disciple. Right? It is in its essence saying as the messenger going from the Roman army that is victorious on the field of battle to the city of Rome, it is declaring God has achieved a great victory. This is good news. This is gospel. Therefore, the world has changed. Respond. Right? Here's, here's, here's what I mean by that. What's amazing is in verse 37, you may not have noticed this. I actually, this is the first year in preaching the, you know, this passage that I noticed this. It says, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. For all the mighty works that they had seen. First of all, that they had seen. This means this is kind of speaking specifically about people who were living in and around Jerusalem. And that means that the time period that they might have been able to see this is the journey from Luke 9 to Luke 19. Ten chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Almost half of the Gospel is him journeying from, uh, from elsewhere to Jerusalem, and it's the narrating on the way. Guess how many miracles happened in ten chapters of Luke? Six. That's it, six. Maybe two chapters out of ten. The rest of it is all teaching. It's all parables. It's all Jesus trying to communicate the nature of the kingdom that he is going to inaugurate the purpose of miracles, we, we, it's hard for us to understand this because of the kind of the cultural gaps and the differences between then and now, but the purpose of miracles is actually to authorize teaching. In other words, they're not something that, that, that exists for their own sake. They are good on their own merit for sure in that they are kind of giving us a foretaste of what Jesus read from the Isaiah scroll. However, the reason Jesus does them, the great, the mighty works, is so that people would listen to what he has to say. And how many of us love what Jesus does for us, but we don't want to hear what he has to say? How many of us praise him for what he has done in our lives, but not for the teaching he gives us that we try not to move, conform our lives around? They think... Like Luke is trying to say they, that this crowd understands who Jesus is as Messiah and King, and they say the right things, but they do not believe the right things or grasp the implications of his teaching. In other words, they think that they're being rescued by Jesus, kind of like lets them off the hook, but the opposite is the case, as, as Jesus himself said in Luke 12, to those whom much is given, much is expected. The so what for us right, we, is, is this. We may not, you know, split or make this false dichotomy between Jesus' miracles and his teaching, but you know what we do? This is, this is just saturating our culture and our society, and that includes the church, that includes us as Christians. We like to make a false dichotomy between rights and responsibilities. God gives us rights, God gives us freedoms, but we don't want to be responsible. We don't want to steward those freedoms for the sake of others, and when we focus on what God has done for us at the expense of what he calls us into, then we treat Jesus as a mascot. And it makes sense, right? A mascot won't disappoint you, but it also won't save you. And you can have a mascot or a messiah, but not both. 
Oh, no, no, let's see. Oh, we have questions this morning. When God does not meet my expectations, I respond poorly with frustration and anxiety. Welcome. <laughs> Me too, bro. Or sis. Um, everyone in this story also seems to respond poorly when their expectations are not met. Are there expectations we can look to in order to better respond when our expectations are not met? Oh, this is a good question. Yeah, it's, it's actually really good news that um, even like the 12, the special forces, green berets of Jesus' disciples are at least as much an idiot as we are, right? Each of them, all of them. I, one of my favorite and most comforting verses around this is that Peter, when Jesus is arrested and being unjustly tried and flogged, he's asked three times, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? And he says, no, I've never knew the guy. Three times. And when he realizes that Jesus knew that was going to happen, because he said three times before the, the rooster crows, you will, you will deny me, he's de devastated. Even he, who Jesus said, you're the rock on which I will build the church, he failed when tested. But then in J John chapter 21, when after the resurrection, when Jesus comes back to the disciples and spends time with them before ascending into heaven, he has Jesus on a beach and they're having breakfast. Um, he asked Peter, he says, do you love me? He says, yes. Jesus says, feed my sheep. He asked this three versions of this question three times to communicate to Peter that as many times as you screw up, as many times as your expectations are frustrated and disappointed, and as many times as you fail to respond well and rightly, I'm going to love you. And that doesn't mean that you're not called to feed the sheep. It doesn't mean you're not called to care and love God's people. If anything, it's part of what qualifies you because you repent. And so I hope that answered your question. Please let me know if it didn't. I'm, I'm happy to continue processing. Next question, why are different used, words used in the translation of the Bible for set free and untie if the original text uses the same words? Might it not be better for translators to be more explicit so as to better connect the dots between the two or multiple meanings of the original word? Or is there an intentional reason for this word divergence in the translation? Um, that's a great question. The answer is actually just, it's, it's really simple, is that anytime you're translating from an original language, you balance like literal accuracy and readability because some words are just really hard to translate the full meaning and every time you, uh, if you're, you're too literal or if you're too uh, uh, contextualizing the word to how it's intended, in both, on both sides, you can make the error that introduces things that scripture is not communicating because of those cultural gaps. So it's a, it's a tightrope to watch, uh, to, to walk. So, but it makes for really cool, insightful sermon points. <laughs> uh, like, right? That's why you have a yes, I, it is. Hopefully, it's not only why I have a job, but yes, <laughs> it is. It is part of that. Yeah, uh, it's part of the importance of actually, like, um, yes, this is something that is simple and accessible to children that we can understand God's love through it, but it's also deep enough that it does require intention and study and, and, and commitment to following Jesus as he uh, is laid out in his word and as he calls us to in his word. So, yeah, okay. 
Last question. It sounds like God is celebrating victory even before Jesus goes to the cross, right? Oh, that's such a good point. Yes. Uh, I totally left out, like, one of the comparisons with the Roman triumph is that is a celebration that happens after the victory, right? When Jesus is, has the triumphal entry, it's actually, chronologically speaking, before. What is, being, what is being implicitly communicated there and what is being suggested and what all of the Israelites would have understood at the time is that God's promises made before they are fulfilled are as complete and certain as after they are fulfilled. It's, called a, it's actually a grammatical category in the Old Testament. It's called prof- prophetic future tense, right? As you, you speak about something in the future as if it has already happened. And we're seeing that actually unfold historically in human events, not just said and spoken. Because when God speaks, there is no difference or daylight between God speaking and fulfillment of what he says. That's awesome, right? Like I said, Palm Sunday has some amazing on its own, not just as a prelude to Easter, meat for us to feast on. Speaking of feasting, um, how's that for a transition to communion? Um, The Roman triumphs, as I mentioned briefly, they ended in a feast, and they ended to celebrate the victor. And that victor was allowed to wear the laurel crown on his head, and he was celebrated, and it was funny, some of the accounts I read actually also included that uh, he had a dedicated group of friends who would be with him to make sure he got home safely. <laughs> it's like, hey, Romans knew how to party. Jesus had a different group of friends around him who did not make sure that he got home safely. They fell asleep while he was agonizingly praying about what he knew was coming down the pike. But at his feast, instead of a one-time feast afterwards, after which the, the Roman general was not allowed to wear the laurel because he didn't, you know, you get your moment uh, in celebrity and, and honor, and then you get to go back to what you were always, always, always doing. For Jesus, that meal is the inauguration of a continuing meal that transcends time and space. And so when we have this bread and wine together as a church, we are actually participating both in the original feast that Jesus had with his disciples on Good Friday, as well as the the crucifixion and the sacrifice of the spotless lamb that it represents. So this is for, if if, if that is even a little bit your hope and you trust in it, this meal is for you. Come and feast and celebrate joyfully. Like, if you want to dance down the aisle, do that, okay? Because on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he says, this bread is my body. It is broken for you. I am that spotless lamb that that was sacrificed in celebration and thanks to God's faithfulness. Likewise, he took the wine and he poured it out and he says, this wine is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the forgiveness of sins such that If you believe in me, you share in my victory 
not as an onlooker or a bystander, but as someone who is covenantally in Christ, for whom all of the glorious consequences of that victory are applied. It is your record. My record is your record. As often as you eat this bread and drink this wine, you proclaim my death, he says. You proclaim Jesus' victory until he returns. It's a never-ending feast. We have gluten-free and wine and juice options, and as soon as you, are, you want to, while Danny is leading us in worship, come on, and as soon as 10 or 12 of us are, are gathered around here, we'll distribute the elements, take them together. But this is, this is joy. This is celebration. It's all because of what Jesus has done. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for... Thank you for achieving a victory not over your enemies because that would, re- that would end in our death. Instead, you've achieved a victory over death itself, ransoming us and, and liberating us from the chains of sin. It may sound esoteric and it may sound hard to grasp our, minds, uh, our hearts or minds around, but God, it is the thing that we hope in. It is the thing that that gives transformation, the good news, the gospel that is proclaimed and it will never end and will only echo into eternity. Lord, nourish us with your presence this morning. We love you. Thank you for loving us and we pray in your name. Amen.